Welcome to A Short History of Symmetry, a series of podcasts from the University of Warwick. In this final episode, Professor Ian Stewart explores the connections between symmetry, particle physics, string and superstring theory. Nobody's ever satisfied. Physicists have got two wonderful theories, both very beautiful, both really to do with symmetries. One is general relativity, which deals with gravity. One is quantum mechanics, which deals with subatomic particles. And then the physicists start to realise that there are some problems where you need to put them both together. And when they try to put them both together, it doesn't work. It's as if one of these very successful theories contradicts the other one. (laughs) They both work, they're both great, but if you put them together, they don't fit. Um must be a horrible realisation. They don't fit for silly mathematical reasons. When you do the calculations, you don't get sensible answers. There are certain features of one that just don't fit with other features of the other. The feeling now, and it's been around for a while, Einstein spent most of the last 20 years of his life trying to unify general relativity with quantum mechanics. He didn't actually like quantum mechanics very much, but he understood that it was you know, the, the prevailing theory, and he had to take account of it. I think he was hoping he'd find something that, uh, that suited his view of how the universe should work a little bit better. And basically, he failed. But there was a man called Kaluza who was playing around with a five-dimensional version of general relativity. Now, why do you do this? Space is not five-dimensional. Well, four dimensions of space, one of time, but that's still that's not the universe we live in. But I think Kaluza, just for the fun of it, was, I wonder what relativity looks like if we do it in five dimensions. And when he did, he discovered it pulled apart into pieces. And one of these pieces looked exactly like relativity in four dimensions, which is not such a surprise. And the other piece looked like electromagnetism in normal space. So five-dimensional general relativity, five-dimensional gravity, contained gravity as it works in our universe and electromagnetism as it works in our universe. It's almost as if we really live in a five-dimensional universe, but we don't notice that, we don't know that. And this probably would have been a really important piece of physics, but Kaluza came up with this idea and there's another man called Klein who is also involved. Um, they came up at just the point when quantum mechanics was taking off and predicting all sorts of things you could go out and measure and win a Nobel Prize for. So the physicists were not interested. And they started to pick up on it much later when they began to realise that you somehow have got to unify gravity and quantum mechanics. And so Kaluza's theory is sitting there. It's a funny way to do it. You invent a new kind of space-time which has an extra dimension that you wouldn't think should be there. And there are various ways to interpret this extra dimension, and nobody knows whether this theory is correct, but it sparked off a whole series of ideas. And this led to the current favoured theory of everything, as they call it. You want to unify quantum theory and relativity, So the physicists have a little joke about this, and they say, this is the theory of everything. These should be some equations you could write on your T-shirt, and where. You can write Maxwell's equations on a T-shirt. In fact, I've got a T-shirt that has them, so, you know, it can be done. 
because um, that unified electricity and magnetism. Now let's do it again, but with gravity and quantum theory. Now the basic idea of superstrings, well they come in several types. It started as string theory and then it later became superstring theory. I'll get round to that. The idea of string theory is to sort of build a world that has the best bits of relativity and quantum theory. And one of the problems with quantum theory is that the quantum particles mathematically are considered to be points. They have zero size. Whereas atoms or electrons actually have some definite non-zero. They're small, but they're not point-like. They have a definite size. And some people start to think maybe the reason we can't reconcile quantum mechanics with gravity is because we're working with these silly points which mathematically introduce singularities. They introduce artificial features into the maths. It may make it simple, but it might also make it wrong. Suppose a particle is a slightly more extensive object. Suppose it's a tiny little ring, let's say. It's a little circle. Circles can vibrate like a guitar string. The vibrations would be rather pretty. You would have to fit a whole number of waves around the ring. Quantum theory is full of quantities that come in whole numbers only. Oh, is that why quantum theory is like that? And then they started to think, well, now, if you um, if you take this, this particle and let it trace out a path through space-time, you don't get a line from a moving point. You get a surface from a moving curve. And that's more in the spirit of Einstein's relativity. And they began to see how you could sort of marry up aspects of Einstein's mathematics with aspects of quantum theory. And what you got wasn't quite either of them. It was a little bit different from relativity right down on the tiny scales of what space-time looked like. It wasn't composed of points, it was composed of little rings. Well, that gives you an extra dimension. It starts to sound like what Kaluza was doing. Um, and particles are not points, as quantum theory says, they're rings, and that starts to sound like something you could really make use of. So it all looked very promising, and they started fitting together the mathematics. And these things were called strings because they're little curves, they're strings. Um, now, the real maths is much more sophisticated, but that's kind of the idea. When they looked into it and started to do the calculations and try and predict some numbers you could go out to measure, it turned out that what was important to make everything work was the symmetry group of your string theory. This told you the shape of your ring that you had replaced your point particles by, except it wasn't a ring, it was more complicated. It was perhaps a six-dimensional surface, or maybe a seven-dimensional surface, or in some cases a 22-dimensional surface. Um, so the whole theory became, space-time became either 10, 11 or 26-dimensional. And it sounds really quite bizarre. You know, what, what, what on earth is going on? But this was the only way that the symmetries and the maths would work out. This was the only way that the sums gave sensible answers. It seemed to be the only way that things would fit. And all of that numerology and the geometry of these spaces were closely connected to, the, to various nice symmetry groups that the mathematicians have been studying for years. There's a, a very strange one, it's called E8. 
and E8, which is a 248-dimensional object, <laughs> turns out to be the basis of two out of the five possible string theories that would, would fit. It's, it seems to be kind of fundamental to this sort of physics. It's all kind of ground to a halt for, for, for two different reasons. The first is, it's all very well coming up with theories of hidden dimensions of space and time, but you need to be able to prove they're there. You've got to do the experiments the way relativity was proved by observing how the sun bends the light from distant stars. And nobody knows how to do good experiments that will demonstrate whether or not this theory is correct. There's a belief that the extra dimensions of space and time might be curled up into such a tiny, tiny region that as far as any experiment's concerned, it looks like a point anyway. This means it's very difficult to devise a direct experiment to test the theory. The laws of physics would be easier if there was a new type of symmetry, which is a sort of mirror image symmetry, but it's not the usual left-right reflection of a mirror. Um, the idea is that every particle in every type of particle in the universe, such as an electron, has associated with it a mathematical transform, which is a totally different kind of particle. Um, it's supersymmetric partner, and these are called selectrons. So every particle has a sparticle, you put an S on the front, except for photons, which don't have photons, they have photinos, and gravitons, the particle that is believed to carry the force of gravity, which have gravitinos. But particles come in pairs. Now, the wonderful thing about all of this is no one's ever observed any of these supersymmetric partner particles. And one of the reasons is they're much more massive, if they exist at all, than any particle we can currently create. We could detect them if they're around, but we can't actually manufacture them in particle accelerators. But mathematically, it's all very, very beautiful. So string theory had to go supersymmetric in order to get the symmetries really working the way the quantum mechanics people would like them to work. And fixing up superstring theory to make good mathematical sense is either very, very complicated or it's a little bit too easy. It depends how much you demand of it. If you demand very, very, very strong mathematical conditions on it, there are very few possibilities, but we don't know whether any of them would fit the universe. If you relax these conditions a little, it turns out there isn't one or two or half a dozen possible string theories to superstring theories to decide between. There are about 10 to the power 500 of them. <laughs> There are, you know, one followed by 500 zeros alternative theories. Um, and things like the basic constants of nature depend are different in different theories of this. So you've got a pretty big range of possibilities. And it seems rather likely that even if... It would be hard to think of a universe that doesn't fit one of them in terms of what you can measure. So to some extent... Superstring theory is now being criticised on the grounds that it's too successful. It's got too many alternatives. Everyone was hoping it would single out one natural structure for the whole of the universe, one type of symmetry group, one way of making a universe that was clearly the best way, the way that would, um, you know, that, that happens to be the one we're in, of course. But it, 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 anyone with any sense would make a universe that way. 
And instead of that, we've got 10 to the power 500 alternatives, which can do almost anything. Um, in some ways, I think that's a little bit unfair, because the rest of physics is full of alternatives. Um, the, the standard model of particle physics has about 25 different constants you're allowed to adjust, not just to 10 to the power 500 values, but to infinitely many values. Um, but to be fair, after you've adjusted some of them, you can predict various of the others. And so we're missing the link to physical reality in terms of solid quantitative experiments. So we can all have a wonderful argument about whether or not superstrings is as important as people have been claiming, whether it's all overblown, um, there's a bit of a swing the other way at the moment. Um, a lot of people have alternative ideas, they all suffer from the same kind of problem. So it's all great fun. But underlying this, even if superstrings are completely useless for physics, they have already made some very important contributions to mathematics. Not just in terms of these symmetry groups, but in terms of solving problems in areas of modern mathematics that people had not previously been able to solve. So this is good stuff for mathematicians, even if it turns out to be complete rubbish for physicists. If you would like to find out more about the history of symmetry, Professor Stewart's book, Why Beauty is Truth, is now available. If you would like to listen to more podcasts from the University of Warwick, then visit the university's podcast page at http colon slash slash www.warwick.ac.uk forward slash go forward slash podcasts. Is the possibility of an asymmetrical universe one that you would countenance? It's important to be open-minded, as a friend of mine says, not so open that your brains fall out. Mm. But my argument that because we have a preference for patterns and because our brains are built of things in the real universe, therefore there must be patterns in the real universe, could be a, a, a philosophical category error. That is, mm. the only level on which the patterns actually work is inside our brains. And the universe itself is not as pretty and structured as we like to think it is. And there is a real question here, which I am prepared to be fairly open-minded about, which is, is there an ultimate theory? Is there a unification? Is relativity, however wonderful and uh, effective it is, it's very, very accurate, but it is not perfect. Now, does that mean there is a better mathematical theory that actually fits the universe exactly? Or is it that the universe is beyond mathematical description, but we can get close, provided we limit the phenomena we're interested in talking about? Um, general relativity describes some things very well, other things it tells us absolutely nothing about things in daily it doesn't tell us about the price of bread <laughs> it doesn't tell us about mother love so knowing a lot about physics may not make your your love life uh, well structured um, so i think it is important to realize that the universe doesn't come with a guarantee saying human type mathematics actually describes how i work um, the universe may be much more it may work in a different way from anything that our brains can put together in a way that our brains can understand. And in fact, 
there's a quote from Einstein along these lines. He says something to the effect that the most surprising thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. <laughs>